0: I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Miami is buzzing about new plans for a 10 mile forgotten stretch of public property underneath the elevated Metro Rail. Manhattan has its High Line, and Miami will soon have its Underline. Meg Daly is founder and president of Friends of the Underline.
1: Meg, describe the Underline. Well, the Underline is driven by a group called Friends of the Underline, and I'm the founder. And we're trying to transform 10 miles of underutilized land below Miami's Metro Rail, which is an above-ground train, into a 10-mile linear park urban trail and also a canvas for artistic expression. The
0: land has been sitting there in plain sight for years, ever since the Metro Rail was constructed, which was in? The 80s. The 80s. What did you see in it that others didn't?
1: Well, you know what's interesting is that I had had a bike accident, and I could not drive. And in Miami, that's a difficult proposition because we're car-centric. And I was forced to, after a couple of months, to get to my physical therapy to take the train. So I rode Metro Rail near my house to Coconut Grove, which is about four miles, and then I walked the rest of the distance below the train tracks. I've lived in Miami my entire life, and this was the first moment where I was forced to slow down and not drive and experience a space in a different way, almost like a different set of glasses, that I had the moment to really perceive the opportunity. And so in that moment, I realized that there was shade, and it was the middle of July. And secondly, I was the only person out there And the third is, it was so wide, I thought, why don't we turn this into something for the community, like the High Line, like Chicago's 606, but at the ground level. So, great impulse. What do you do then? Well, I think you just talk it up. And um, I'm from sales and marketing, and so there's a general general standard. If one in ten people think you have a good idea... Maybe you're onto something. And what I discovered, I just talked up this crazy idea to anybody who would listen, and more like nine out of 10 thought it was a good idea. So it was the absolute flip-flop of what I was used to. So I thought, maybe this isn't such a crazy idea. And since I'd never navigated the political scene, I had never driven a public-private partnership, I had really never been engaged in our community, that I reached out to people who knew how to navigate that and I was sort of taken by the elbow and groundswell sort of pushed me forward and in that moment I saw this is what could be and everybody else said oh go to that door go to that door go to that door and first we found out who owned the land and that's Miami-Dade County Transit so we went and talked to that director and then we were talking to the parks director because this would be a project for parks and then, because we had no money and we needed to design, we ended up with the School of Architecture at UM, who took us on as a studio project. So I would say that those three things, finding your partners, finding your believers, finding your advocates, and they'll push you through the right doors. Since the High Line was opened in lower
0: Manhattan, a lot of people are now looking anew at Discarded or underused or unused uh, industrial infrastructure in their cities. And like all of these projects, the Underline has some unusual challenges. In the case of the Underline, the project crosses multiple major intersections right off of US-1. So people are turning off US-1, moving at a pretty fast clip. How are you addressing that challenge?
1: Well right now we're in our master planning stage and our design team is interestingly enough the same team that designed the High Line. Um, I think that that's pretty much where the similarities end. Uh, The High Line is elevated. They can lock it and leave it at night so it's secure. Uh, They don't have the interruptions that we have but they also had to shore up the infrastructure which was 40 percent of their cost. So I sort of think of um, being at ground level crossing those intersections that's our infrastructure problem Uh, we're working with um, a traffic engineering firm called kenley horn they know this parcel and we're making numerous proposals both to um, improve the cross street intersections as well as us one so the discussion has gotten even larger and i was in a um a charrette two weeks ago in the city of coral gables and people were saying this over and over turn us one into a boulevard and so how what a great opportunity to take what's now become um, a street level highway and restore it to a boulevard that speaks to people on both sides of the street But to answer your question specifically there's three interventions that we have for the intersections minimally backing the crosswalk off of the highway because right now if you're crossing the street it directly abuts it Um, widening the crosswalk to 18 feet which is the width of both paths Um, lighting it and also giving a time delay for people crossing the street so pedestrians and bicyclists get the advantage Uh, The second intervention, you know, going from least expensive to most expensive, the next level is to create what's called a speed table where the whole intersection is elevated. And what that does is it alerts drivers that it's time to slow down as you're approaching the intersection. And then the third is the flyover, and that is an elevated pedestrian bicycle bridge um, the United States is not well known for doing beautiful, elegant flyovers, and so that's another challenge. We want them to rethink that opportunity to make the flyover a public space and not just a place that I travel. And I would assume all of this is under the direction of or or
0: certainly the... Um, You have to have, as a partner, FDOT, Florida Department of Transportation, for any changes to US-1. Um, I know a lot of people, when they tackle transportation projects that try to move more toward pedestrian and bicycling, they get pushback from their state departments of transportation. What's been your experience with with FDOT and their willingness to be a partner on this project?
1: Well, I think because this is such a high-impact project, I mean, 10 miles as your first bite of a future vision for a city um, is substantial and it's hard to ignore. The second is that there is a philosophical shift um, in the eyes of the leadership at FDOT, that it's not just roads that can move people. Um, Alternative transportation, which is called walking and biking, which is kind of funny because we walked and biked before we ever drove. they're, they're saying that maybe we can build a connection in, in an integrated holistic way between car, between walking and biking, and also mass transit. And again, I think the reason it's very hard to ignore the opportunity with the underline is it's directly connected to transit. So we have this integrated passageway, commuter highway with every mode of transit, and FDOT's beginning to embrace that because we're out of funds, for big highway infrastructure projects. Our federal legislature just gave a three month vision, you know, so we're taking these very small steps in funding for big um, capital projects. So I think one, the philosophical shift. Two, I think this is too hard to ignore since it's not a small project, it's a big one. And I think our timing is right. We have great cities in Miami and in Europe and throughout the world that have adopted. Uh, ways to move other than driving because it's financially, economically, socially a better solution than the car.
0: Meg, you've done really an amazing job in getting political support for this project, The Underline, so quickly. And,
1: and you've brought how many governments? There's uh, the county and three municipalities. So I like to say that I report to Four mayors, four vice mayors, and 34 commissioners. (laughs) Plus (laughs) the Florida Department of Transportation. Plus FDOT, plus every public agency along the way. Um, There's a lot of stakeholders. Yeah. And you just seem
0: to navigate that uh, with such calm. Uh, I, but you say you'd never done this before. I know you 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 come from a a family that has navigated these things before uh, for civic purposes. Your father was has been instrumental in a number of great projects. I mean, do you what advice would you have for people who are looking at this kind of infrastructure in their cities and need uh, need to build the public private will to do them?
1: Well, I I have had a number of organizations call me and say, what's your roadmap? And the first thing I say is there is no roadmap, but there kind of is. And so they, do I I tackle social media? Do I try to get a groundswell? Do I crowdfund? And I I really believe if you don't have political support, uh, it's very difficult to move ahead. And you're going to be moving in very small incremental steps. So the first thing I did, you're talking to someone who had never been to a commission meeting in her life uh, before this project started. And um, I tackled the political front. And people would say, oh, you need a resolution to be endorsed. Oh, that's a great idea. How do you do that? And so I would say that the lightning in my pocket is um, owning up to the fact that I don't know anything and asking people who do know something how to get things done. And get a few people, wise people, uh, to support your vision, and get a knight foundation to believe in you. And it's great when you have these people backing you up and supporting you and driving you forward. So those little, so those little challenges don't become massive obstacles. Um, a, I tackled the political front first. We got endorsements from the municipalities first. The county was last in line. Um, but all of those endorsements were um, unanimous. Then you go to the stakeholders who are important along the way, certainly transit because they own the land, parks because they're the green people, Um, and then we discovered we had a transportation solution, FDOT, so it's really connecting the dots and lining up your advocacy and pushing the message out all the way from the top to the grassroots.
0: You reminded me of something you did that I thought was especially smart. You first asked government for endorsement, not money.
1: Well, that's because I didn't know anything. (laughs) But as it turns out, and I'm going to go back to that studio class at the University of Miami. And we use that studio class really as a marketing opportunity to open up discussions. If you ever go to a School of Architecture jury or midterm review, there's probably four professors in the room and they're talking critically with their expertise. I just saw that as a great way to bring in people with bottles of water and cookies to talk about things. And that's where the excitement began. If you give people to the opportunity to hear their thoughts and then activate them, You know, so what we did was we opened up these discussions in these crowd ways, but real hands-on, where people would come in, they would comment on the student design, and so they were involved in the exercise. So you know what happens, people have a voice, they become critically involved, and they become owners. And we did that with all the municipalities, FDOT, Public Works, and so then when you go back and ask them for money, it was their idea. Not ours.
0: Highline co-founder Robert Hammond believes that one of the mistakes he made up front on that project was not setting up a mechanism to capture the value that the Highline would create for the real estate surrounding the Highline. The city owns the infrastructure, but the Highline, friends of the Highline, have to operate, maintain it, and that cost a lot of money. And so the city is reaping reward from the higher taxes on the higher uh, appraised values of the property. The property owners are reaping value from the higher uh, value now of their property because people want to be near the high line, but the high line is getting none of that. Uh, Have you, what's your take on funding the operations and maintenance of the underline?
1: as I mentioned we're in our master plan stage and one of the things that we're going to get out of our master plan is an economic um, impact study but we started way before that process ever started because it's interesting you go to public um, you go to elected officials and they say great we may have the money the capital money to build but how are you going to maintain and um, one We're landscaping with low-maintenance plants. We're not irrigating. This is a transportation corridor, so it's not deer. It can't be fragile. It has to be hardy in that regard. So we're trying to make sure that what we put in place is durable. But there will be maintenance issues, and as you know, the Parks Department has trouble getting funding to mow their lawns. Um, So we want to capture some of that value that we create. Uh, Great parks should do that uh great urban parks do that and there's a mechanism called um TIF which is a tax increment funding um mechanism and it's a little difficult for us but I do believe that we'll be able to implement something similar to it where the municipalities that front this corridor so th- This is all transit land, and we cannot put structures on it. We cannot put restaurants and cafes on it. So where we have to capture value is on the properties that directly abut it. And so the way a TIF works is let's say that that building is worth $100 today, and it's generating $10 worth of tax revenue. And so five years from now, it's doubled its value, and it's generating double the tax revenue, we would capture a very small percentage of the incremental increase. And what that does is, A, there's not additional taxes, which is not popular for elected officials. And we're saying we're responsible for all of this joy and happiness. Maybe we should just take a sliver of that for it to go back to the maintenance and ongoing programming for the space. So
0: the underline is in design with uh, James Corner's firm, what happens... Next, and when do you expect it to open?
1: Uh, We're going to be finishing up our uh, master plan design in September. We have public meetings coming up again. We've already had two sets, and these are September 24th and 26th. We've taken the feedback from the public so seriously. I got a Facebook post recently that someone said, I'm so excited that I didn't make it to any of your public meetings, but your your vision is exactly what I would have asked for. Um, so once we're done and we get the final public feedback, we have to get Federal uh, Transit Authority, which is FTA, um, blessing through transit. Another boss. And Oh, another one. <laughs> I left them out, but they're very important. Um, and then we have to get... Um, county commission approval and then at that point uh, we have to go to permitting after construction documents and then we can building hopefully by the fall of 2016 if you're to calendarize that uh, we incorporated in january of 2014 that will have been less than two years from idea to shovel in the ground that's blazing
0: <laughs> speed, Meg. You you continue to take my breath away on this one. Um, I, I know that people around the country will, uh, you know, already are seeking your advice and will continue to seek your advice because not only, I think, is it a spectacular project in the making, but the way in which you built public support for this uh, – is uh, in such a short time is astonishing. So congratulations. I appreciate the work you've done. I know Knight Foundation appreciates the work you've done as well. Thanks for being our guest on Night Cities. Thank you. Meg Daly is founder and president of Friends of the Underline. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at knightfoundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know about this interview, and others. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.